Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. This episode is special because it's the last of the year. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us for a while, thank you for listening. After you finish this episode, please take the survey linked in the episode notes. It's just a short series of questions that will help me improve the podcast for the future. Thank you so much for your support, and see you in 2023. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Dr. Mark Schertz, Curator of Herpetology at the Natural History Museum of Denmark and Assistant Professor of Vertebrate Zoology at the University of Copenhagen. He's here today to tell me about his paper published in Volume 7, Issue 2 of Megataxa, in which he and his co-authors describe an astounding 20 new species of frogs from Madagascar. Welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. I love the title of your paper, which is An Inordinate Fondness for Inconspicuous Brown Frogs. Yes, it's a subtle uh, reference to a JBS Haldane quote that's sometimes attributed to Darwin about how he said, if, if there were indeed a divine creator, then he must have an inordinate fondness for beetles in the original quote. But um, when we look close at the little brown frogs, as this paper kind of attests, it turns out the creator probably also really liked very small brown frogs. And you were actually the very first episode of this podcast back in January 2021, so it's so fun to have you back. It is a delight to be back, and I, I, I have a small confession. I can't remember which paper we were talking about in that uh, first episode. It's been such a long time. <laughs> I guess we'll both have to go... Uh... Dig in the archives. Yeah, so let's begin with the group of frogs you're working on. Um, before your paper, this was a subgenus called Briagamantis. It's still a subgenus, um, but uh, the subgenus originally only contained 14 species. So can you tell us about why you and your peers decided to investigate this group in the first place? Yeah, so um, it's hard to say why we started to work on them other than we work on all of the frogs from Madagascar, and these were simply the next up on the chopping block. Um, in a way, we've been wanting to do this work for 30 years. Uh, actually, if you go and look in the very first field guide by Frank Glav and Miguel Vences, who Miguel was a senior author on this paper, um, Miguel and Frank were my uh, PhD supervisors. We work very closely together as a very large team of people working on the reptiles and amphibians of Madagascar. But Miguel and Frank, they published a field guide to the amphibians and reptiles of Madagascar in 1992, the first edition came out. And in there, there is a, a, a line on this group of frogs, which at that point, I, I don't even know how many species it was, I think it was only six species. And, and there was a line in there to the effect of, we simply haven't the data that, that we would be needing in order to address these in any kind of satisfactory manner. 
And since then, in the intervening 30 years, um, we have amassed that missing data. So it's kind of, we, we reached a critical point, and we'll get to this later, we reached a critical point where the data were sufficient, there's brand new methods that we were able to bring to bear, and suddenly we were able to do incredible things in the taxonomy of these frogs that we just wouldn't have been able to do even five years ago. Um, aside from the fact that we have amassed an enormous number of specimens and, and data points from across the island. So really, it's uh, uh, the reason we started working on them is because now was the moment and we seized the moment. And as you said, this massive paper includes a very, very high number of specimens. Um, and some of those specimens were museum specimens, and some of them you and your team actually went out and field collected. Um, so can you tell us about those two parts, um, starting with what collecting these frogs looks like? Yeah, so um, we have genetic data on 1,300 frogs in this paper, and morphological data from hundreds, not thousands, but hundreds of frogs. Um, and those have been amassed largely by our team over the last 30 years. Obviously, I'm too young for it to have been my footwork. I was born in 1991, around the same time my supervisors were writing about this whole problem with there not being enough data. So I can't exactly say that, you know, that, <laughs> that I've been contributing as much as they have over that intervening 30 years, other than ultimately you know, getting an education and whatnot. So yes, when you go out and collect these frogs, you know, these, these things are found all across Madagascar. This group of frogs, they're little brown, ruddy frogs. They live along stream banks and the sides of some lakes and things. They are quite inconspicuous. They're sometimes rather hard to find. And um, oh, I should say they're really found basically across all of Madagascar where there is enough moisture. So in the south of Madagascar, there's desert basically inaccessible for these frogs, but in some areas of the west, some moister areas of the west, and then across the east coast and up to the north, uh, we've, we've got all these different species, and, and sometimes at massive numbers. In fact, if you've ever been to Madagascar and you've been near a lake, chances are you've heard or seen them. They call very inconspicuously, and that's one of the charming things about them, but it also makes them rather difficult to study. Um, they emit these calls that sound a lot like a door creaking or a stomach gurgling. So the call is like, or, so those kinds of very subtle um, calls, and, they, and they'll repeat them. You know, most frogs have these uh, very uh, repetitious, uh, constant calls. So it'd be something like, and then two minutes later, and then, so it's that kind of consistency. So you have those breaks in between the calls that you can use to locate them. And ultimately, the reason we are looking for those calling males is because, first of all, it's easier to find them than it would be to just randomly happen across a frog. Uh, secondly, you know that a calling male is a mature adult frog, adult male. That's very nice because it means we can be comparing with adults. We want to be using adults when we're identifying the things. And secondly, that call is very species-specific. So because it's involved in sexual selection, calls tend to evolve very quickly. They tend to be highly species-specific. And so when you can catch the individual who's been making the call and you've recorded the call, you can be 100% certain that that call belongs to that species, and then you can sequence that species, and suddenly you have this definite connection between the sequence data 
and the call data, and that's very, very helpful when we're going to describe, identify, and ultimately then apply the definitions of the species that we're looking at. What about those museum specimens? Um, you retrieved DNA from then as well, and actually you retrieved DNA from nearly all of the type specimens in the subgenus, which sounds absolutely terrifying to me. Um, yeah. So uh, what what is this process, and how do you avoid damaging these really important archival specimens? So I, I should preface this by saying at this point, this is... Um, a massive team of co-authors who've gone into this. We have 22 co-authors on this paper, um, many fulfilling very different roles. Of course, many were involved in the fieldwork. Some of them were involved specifically in this part that we call museomics, this study uh, or, or this practice of extracting and using DNA from archival specimens, from specimens that were preserved for the preservation of their morphological features. And often those will have been fixed with formalin. Now, formalin, as anyone who works with DNA uh, should know, is like DNA's worst nightmare. It actually um, it denatures, partially denatures the DNA, it causes cross-linking, it fractures it up. So, you know, there, there are several terrible things that you can do to DNA. One is to give it time. Two is to put it near water. It doesn't like to be near water. It breaks up over time when it's near water. And three is to subject it to formalin. And so when you have these, um, this DNA from these old specimens, and in this case we're talking the oldest specimen that we got DNA from, I believe, was collected in the 1870s. It was a species uh, Mantidactylus ulcerosus, the very first species described in this subgenus. We managed to get um, DNA from a specimen that was originally a syntype. We now designated it as the lectotype because we have DNA on it. Good to use this as the reference specimen. So over time, of course, that DNA degrades. In the museum collection, it degrades. But we used a method that we have actually developed in another subgenus of the genus Mantidactylus, which is very speciose, especially now. But we had developed this a couple of years ago. We call it um, barcode fishing. And essentially, it's like using DNA barcoding, except rather than use primers, as you might usually do, we take a sample of all the DNA that we could extract from this specimen, which is often fragmented, degraded, etc. We use what's called hybrid enrichment sequencing to essentially fish out those bits that would match to DNA barcodes. And in this case, we've designed those DNA barcodes based on specifically all of the known amphibians from Madagascar, and specifically, I believe, four different genetic markers for those amphibians. And, and that includes the undescribed species. So we've got, I think, some 500 species that are for those four different markers. We pull all of that down, we sequence it out, we get some reads, and then we can very carefully assemble those reads. Uh, and that is basically where we get this DNA sequence data from these old museum specimens. And now we can take our reference library of all of the modern samples that we've got. Remember, 1,300 frogs that we've sampled across Madagascar. All of those are DNA barcoded. And now we have also the sequences from the lectotypes or from, from, from the type specimens, especially the name-bearing types. And we can match those up. And what that does is now we have the genetic lineages that we knew about from our modern sampling, but we can assign to those the most appropriate names based on those samples, that, those, those DNA sequences that we got from the types. 
Those names are then confidently assigned. We can assign some of them. We can say, oh, these two cluster into exactly the same small species clade. The younger one is then, by definition, the synonym, and the older one is definitionally the superior name, or the senior name, and therefore the valid name. And all of the rest of the lineages, all those clades that are left over after you've done all of that sorting, suddenly we can describe all of those with absolute confidence that we're not working with synonyms. So in this case, Brigamantis, there were 20 available names. We got DNA sequences from, I believe, 16 of those, and were able to assign them. The other ones we were able to assign based on other things like morphology, biogeography, etc. And we were left with 15 names, in fact. So um, there were 14 names before. We found that one of the available names was actually a synonym. So that would bring us down to 13. But then we found two of the available names were actually valid species that hadn't had names assigned to them. And so those ones were revalidated. So suddenly we were at 15, but we were left with 20 unnamed lineages, 20 unnamed species. And so we were very easily able then to say, okay, here we go, 20 new species, and you know, write all of those descriptions, which of course is a very long process and whatever, but um, it, it made our lives substantially easier. So this museomics practice really has changed the landscape of how we can work, especially in very complex systems like this, where the type material can be ambiguous or difficult to assign or damaged or whatever. In addition to that process you've just described, uh, you also used morphology, and you also used bioacoustics to distinguish between some of these new species. Um, so can you tell us what bioacoustics is and how that process went? Yeah, so this was basically, um, we were pulling into, I mean, my, my team has long embraced this concept of integrative taxonomy, right, where you draw on all of the different lines of evidence, you look for, for coalescence between what they say, and you pull out the species from those. And um, so, you know, the museomics is a big part, the genetics is a big part. Morphology, you can look at the coloration, you know, physical features, you can look at morphometrics, and then the bioacoustics, which in frogs is very important. I think I already mentioned, basically, um, the calls are very species-specific. So what we do, we make those recordings in the field. We uh, usually are, are making those recordings at night, because most of the frogs call at night. Um, and then we uh, bring them back and we analyze them. Now, most of the bioacoustic analysis on this paper was done by Jörn Kühler, who is a very active uh, bioacoustician. He um, actually wrote like the reference paper published in Zootaxa uh, several years ago now, I think 2017, um, for basically methods on how to analyze and present uh, frog bioacoustic data in a comparable manner uh, for taxonomic work. And, um, and yeah, so, so by doing that, you're able to present basically, this is the species-specific call for this one, and this one, and this one, and this one, and this one. And we have calls for uh, not all 35 species, but many of them. I don't actually know how many species we got calls for, but it's uh, the, the majority for sure. That's really impressive. It was a lot of work over the years, for sure. And, you know, I, I made my recordings, and Frank made his recordings, and Miguel made his recordings, and Ando made her recordings, and Angelica made her recordings. And so bringing all of those together, just getting a team of 22 people to cooperate is always a, a challenge. Um, and, and doing so in a timely manner, I mean, really enormous, enormous props has to go to the senior author, Miguel. Really, this was his brainchild, and, and he put an incredible amount of effort into collating all this data, did all the genetic analysis himself for the, for the actual phylogenetics and whatnot. 
The phylogenomics was mostly done by Carl Hutter. So, you know, it's really this big team of people who pulled together. And, and I'm, you know, just, I, I feel incredibly privileged to have sat as, as first author on this and coordinated and written an enormous amount to <laughs> just, just reviewing. This is a 199-page monograph, dear listener. Um, <laughs> so, and we had to go through the proofs uh, four times. So, you know, at some point you just become completely blind to any changes that there are. Um, but this is a really enormous, enormous amount of work by this big team, and I'm just very grateful to all my, my colleagues for it. It is a huge amount of work, and just on the last episode, I was uh, speaking to Kit as well about the importance of collaboration in science, and uh, I think that it it is never said too often how important it is to collaborate and how much we can accomplish when we do it together. Absolutely. I mean, no, no scientist should ever be sitting alone. Um, this is, uh, especially, you know, taxonomy has changed a lot in the last, I would say, 20 years. We can see an enormous transition from single authorships, especially among vertebrates. I know that this is, single authorships are still um, quite the done thing in some of the other groups, but very, very few single author taxonomic papers are now being published on frogs, for instance. There are some people who still do it traditionally or whatever, but you know, for the most part, we have acknowledged that in order to have this integrative system, in order to have it especially inclusive so that you're really working with the local people in the countries where the animals come from, you have to have big teams. Um, and, and that's just how it's working out. It's unfortunate that it makes the, uh, the author list, you know, the, the author um, line on, on a given species, that, that full citation, excessively long. But on the other hand, you know, the, the, uh, the code doesn't stipulate anything about um, whether or not you're allowed to abbreviate. So, you know, ultimately, we've got 22 authors on this. You could call each of them shirts et al. if you wanted to. You know, that's a, it's just a space thing. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, you guys have all done a massive amount of work. So before the revision, you and your team started with 14 individual species, um, and now you've defined eight distinct clades within this subgenus, and uh, a lot of information is also known about how these now 35 species in this clade are distinguished from each other. Yeah, exactly. So originally, these, these 14 species, they were divided into a series of species complexes, as it turns out, those species complexes, which were based largely on, on uh, morphological similarity, to some extent also, I guess, bioacoustic similarities, the similarity of those calls. Um, it, well, as, as we got the genomic results especially back, which was another big part of this, the genomics shocked us to the core because we realized that none of those complexes were actually monophyletic. In, in, I think in every case, they were composed of species from paraphyletic lineages. Maybe the Curtis clade didn't get broken up, but for instance, what used to be called the Betzelianus complex, these are little frogs with ridges down the back, and they often have a white point on the front of the nose. As it turns out, that's not one clade, but in fact the Betzelianus clade to itself, and then what is now called the Fergusoni clade has uh, four species within it, and actually one of those species has multiple subspecies. So it's kind of a, um, a big transition, in a way, rethinking the, you know, what we used to call the biporous complex. Completely wrong. Uh, in fact, there are all of these different groups of frogs that just by chance or, or convergent evolution, or maybe it's the ecology that's driving this, we speculate a little bit in the discussion, 
they they look similar, but they're actually not very closely related. It's really a surprising and interesting case, but a nightmare as a taxonomist. I'm sure, but an interesting nightmare, hopefully. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's triggered. Uh, there will certainly be more work on this in the future, more evolutionary study, more more looking into biogeographical patterns, etc. So how did you and your team name these 20 new species and four new subspecies? Um, and do you have a favorite? Ah, uh, um, so... I know that honorifics are a little bit controversial. In this case, you know, you're faced with 20 species. Many of them do look identical to one another, um, and, and truly identical. Some of them can only be told apart by their calls. And faced with such a case, you could do what some people have done, and, you know, name one species like Bruneus, and then you could have one called uh, Pseudobruneus, and one called Parabruneus, one called Parapseudobruneus, etc. Um, no, we avoided that. We used a mixture. Some of them are honorifics, so we uh, were very pleased to dedicate several species to uh, eminent friends and colleagues from across the world. Um, especially, I think it's very uh, nice to, to point out that we've named a species after Molly Bletz, who is uh, uh, she's been doing a lot of very important work on um, frog probiotics, which is a big topic right now in conservation. Um, and, and Katharina Wollenberg, who has done really amazing stuff in, in speciation and biogeography in Madagascar and elsewhere. And, you know, those kinds of people who really have deserved to have a, a frog named after them. Um, and then on top of that, there are some that are named after, you know, morphological features in Latin. So, for instance, Stelliger is a personal favorite among those names. It means starry, and that's a species that looks like it's covered in sort of white spots down the flank, which is just, it's just a beautiful little frog. Um, so Mantodactylus Stelliger. And then there's, um, uh, for instance, Brevi Rostris, which has this caricature short snout. I think that's probably one of my favorite members of the entire genus. It, it just looks as though it's kind of got this kind of very snubbed nose that very much looks like a caricatured frog you might draw. Um, and then finally, the third kind of category we used are Malagasy names. So we often, in, in many of our species descriptions, we use Malagasy names. Um, for instance, in this case, we have Manerana, we have Futaka. Futaka means mud, um, which I like for a muddy brown frog. Um, I believe one of the peer reviewers was like, oh, mud, that's not a very creative name if they all live in mud. But I was like, you know, we've got 20 species and they all look the same. So, yeah, they're going to be some <laughs> kind of non-distinctive names. Um, and, and, you know, yes, it's a, it's a challenge always coming up with, with 20 new names. But I think there are some, uh, some very nice ones in there. And, of course, with 20 to choose from, actually 24, as you say, to choose from with those four new subspecies. Uh, which I, I think we don't have time to go into the whole subspecies thing, but we did describe subspecies for the first time that I've ever described some subspecies in this case uh, for some really interesting evolutionary cases. If anyone is interested among the listeners uh, in understanding how uh, we are applying the subspecies concept following Kevin de Quiroz's ideas on the topic, uh, do please give it a read because it's really, they're very, very interesting cases. And the paper is open access. We haven't mentioned that already. Yeah, absolutely. This is a paper 30 years, you said? At least, yeah. This is a paper at least 30 years in the making. Uh, it involves over 20 people. Why is it important to put so much time and effort and energy into this 
Why is biodiversity discovery so important? And why does your paper, your discovery matter? Oh, I feel like those are three distinct questions. Um, I, I think, you know, we're, we're doing this um, for so many different reasons. Obviously, and I think we can't understate this, we're doing it because we have a passion for it. We're doing it because we love these animals and we think that they're special and it's fascinating and interesting to make discoveries about them. Um, I think often people will try to turn it around, and I'll get to that in a second, about making it it important to say how how useful they are to us but i think that usefulness is far far down the priority list for me i'm much more interested in studying them because i think they're fascinating and worth studying right um but i also think we're you know we are doing this at a at a incredible tight time scale we have many of these things are living in very small forest fragments fortunately Mantidactylus, they seem to be able to survive, especially Brigomantis, seem to be able to survive tolerably well in gallery forests that kind of persists along waterways. But we don't know if those populations are actually viable or if they're simply downstream sweepings of the tadpoles from higher up populations that are viable. Um, so, you know, there, there is a huge time concern. Madagascar is under enormous, the, the forests, the natural habitats everywhere across the island are under enormous pressure from one of the most impoverished communities in the world. I mean, the Madagascar is one of the poorest, is number four, I believe, on the uh, poorest country in the world. So the people are turning to the forest, as they always have, as a source of, of food and shelter and everything else that they rely upon. And um, that burden that is a result of that poverty uh, is felt by the, by the animals. And um, it's... It's not possible for us to change that at a legislative level. That has to change at the level of of, of actual community investment and, and changing in the, the fate of the country. But I could wax lyrical on that topic for a very long time. I think, ultimately, by giving these species names, we allow them to be red-listed. We allow us to slowly uh, gather data on them in the future. Most of them, we don't know what the tadpole looks like. We don't know if they all breed the same way. We don't know when they breed, if they're seasonal, if they're explosive breeders, probably they're not, but who knows? Um, in every single case, you know, there's a lot to be discovered. And, you know, we, we're just making it possible to catalog that knowledge by giving names to those species. So we're just basically providing the filing system. Now, if anybody is interested in, in frog ecology, and they happen to be interested in small brown muddy frogs that live along riverbanks, um, this is the first port of call. Well, I'm now very interested in small brown frogs. Good. Um, I'm excited to continue to learn about them, um, to check out your podcast, which I'll put a link to in the description. And this was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. If anybody uh, wants to follow me on the on the interwebs, you can find me um, at that bird site, uh, at Mark Shirts. And then also on Mastodon, at Mark Schertz, at ecoevo.social. I don't know how Mastodon works yet. I'm also back on Tumblr, markshirts.tumblr.com, and uh, my website, markshirts.com. And I also have a YouTube show called Anatomy Insights, where we do dissections of various interesting creatures. We have a seal dissection coming up sometime next year. I'll put all that in the description. I'm about 
to spend the next six hours of my life watching those dissections. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> it's mostly aimed um, at, uh, at high school <laughs> and, and first year university students. Um, we're, we're just trying to make dissections more accessible to students. We do not think that these can possibly serve as a replacement for those dissections, but they may serve as a guide. So I hope that they are interesting to you. I'm sure I'll enjoy them. Good. Mark Schert's paper, An Inordinate Fondness for Inconspicuous Brown Frogs, Integration of Phylogenomics, Archival DNA Analysis, Morphology, and Bioacoustics, yields 24 new taxa in the subgenus Bergamantis from Madagascar, is in Volume 7, Issue 2 of Megataxa. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper and to learn more about Mark and his work. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com.